This is Dan Greenstone in Chicago, and I'm with Christian Goodwillie from Hamilton College. Hey, Christian. Hey, hey, Dan. How you doing? And joining us, as always, of course, is Travis Chandler, our engineer and composer. Hey, Travis. Howdy, Dan. Well, last time, guys, we did an episode on the Koreshian Unity, fascinating commune. And we've got our guests back from last time. We interviewed Lynn Milner and Adam Morris, two of the leading experts on the Koreshian Unity. And we're going to jump back into the conversation with them to find out what happened to the Koreshian Unity when they moved to Florida. But Christian, can you give us a quick recap? Yeah, absolutely, Dan. So the Koreshian Unity are definitely one of the most fantastic and strange intentional communities in American history. They were founded by a man named Cyrus Reed Teed, who was born in 1839 in southeastern New York State. And he served in the Civil War as a, uh, a doctor on the battlefield. He apparently had sunstroke and left the army. Following that, he moved to Utica, New York, um, at the edge of the burned over district, and practiced medicine as well as alchemy. And it was there in 1869 that he had what he called his illumination that sent him off on his messianic journey. Teed conceived of a new cosmology, uh, which he called Koreshianity. And he believed that the earth was hollow, that we all lived inside on the inner crust, and that all the cosmos was contained within. After a series of aborted attempts at communal living, uh, which took him from Moravia, New York, to New York City, to San Francisco and Chicago, he led his group down to Florida, where they settled and started a new community on the Gulf Coast. I love that you can say with a straight face and just calm equanimity. He practiced medicine and alchemy. <laughs> exactly. In Utica, New York, of all places. Where where we have been with you. Yes. What, what was that? Uh, Vietnamese food? Oh, God. There's such great Southeast Asian food in Utica. Yeah. Um, I should also say, while we're talking about travels and before we get to Lynn and Adam, uh, I forgot to mention this to you guys. My wife and I went to the Koreshian Unity uh, State Park in Florida over Christmas break. Did I not mention that? No, you didn't actually tell me that. It's really cool. Like uh, you've you've been, I'm sure, right, Christian? Yes. Um, you can see the split open globe that you mentioned that shows um, what it looks like on the inside and the buildings, and it really gives you a sort of a sense of the pioneer spirit of them, like carving out this living in amongst the alligators in the tropics. There. Did you get the sense, Dan, that you were indeed in the Vitellus of the Cosmogonic Egg? Um, I'll have to refer to my notes to try to figure out what you just said. But... <laughs> That's the name of my next album. <laughs> Even better than that, we'll be bringing Lynn Milner and Adam Morrison to uh, help us understand what happened when they were living in Florida. Um, yeah. Okay, let's do it. Okay, um, I'm curious. Um, so they go to Southwest Florida, and Lynn, I just love the portrait of, of Southwest Florida that you give in your book at that time. Could you tell us what it was like? Uh, when they arrive? Well, it was dark when they first saw the land. They spent the night in a homesteader's cabin. Victoria was very tall and her feet hung off of the small bed. They spent the night in the dark and then they woke up to this, just as you can imagine, this place of utter beauty. And as Chicagoans, <laughs> who were down in Southwest Florida in the winter, right? It's, it was just almost unimaginably pretty. Their stories back then, this is not the case anymore, of uh, phosphorescence in the water, 
So as they were pulling their way up the Estero River to the, the homesteader's house, they wrote about seeing the phosphorescence in the water. If you can imagine that, it was bioluminescence. Um, and so it was really quiet, right? Only the animals. And when they got to the landing, they spent the night in the cabin and then they just waited. And I think it was that night when Teed said a benediction and he declared the place the cosmic vitalis of the universe. No, the cosmonog... The vitalis of the cosmogonic egg. Thank you. Right. I can't believe I didn't remember that. So he declared it that they went to sleep, they woke up and they're fruit trees. They, they wake up to like wonderful smells. The Gustav Domkoller, who was the homesteader, had bees, so they would have heard the buzzing of bees. Just the most beautiful place you can imagine. And you don't need to pay for heating. You can catch your own food. You, you aren't harassed by people in society and you can truly be isolated and live this pious life. So it was just, just a gorgeous place. So once the Crushing Unity relocates itself to the Florida Gulf Coast, they're in an entirely new and exotic environment. Uh, and reading your book, Lynn, we read about them fighting off mosquitoes and fleas and fishing using lanterns in these estuaries, getting 100-pound mullets to jump up in their boat and they have to dodge them to avoid serious injury. It seems like such a remarkable adventure. How did they establish a community there and make a living for themselves? Well, the first people who went down were hardy settler types. A lot of the people who went down were men. Uh, and they set about building the cabins where they would live and starting some industry so that it would be ready for them when they came down to Chicago. But it was hard work, you know, if you can imagine being in Florida without air conditioning in the summer, building cabins, it was ugly. Um, at one point, a typhoid struck. The water, the wells had not been dug uh, deep enough. Uh, and so they were dealing with that, and they even lost some followers who died because of typhoid. That was actually much later. But they were workers. It's kind of amazing that these uh, people who came from Chicago were suddenly thrust onto this land and they had to build it from the ground up and they made it work. Well, speaking of work, um, Adam, I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about what the systems were that they had for communal living in terms of economics. How did they distribute income or redistribute income? So one of the things that they worked out was a system of quasi-communism that was similar to what had functioned at modern times. And it was a credit for work system with complicated ledgers that everyone was entered in on. But it seemed to me that actuarial part of the labor sharing endeavor kind of fell a little bit by the wayside in Florida once things got going and people had defined roles and identities that were based around those roles. So I, I've read a, a lot about the women that comprise the so-called planetary court, which is one of the most fabulous buildings that you can visit today if you visit the state historic site in Florida. Lynn, who were these women and what, what exactly was the planetary court? 
The Planetary Court was a place where the leading women of the unity lived. They were chosen by Teed. Some of them seem to have been chosen because of their wealth or their early involvement with the unity. He just thought they were good leaders and he put them in charge of various things. And so they lived in a two-story house with a cupola, with a, a little attic house at the top at a little apartment where Henry Silver Friend, who was a silver friend indeed, lived above the women as almost like a watcher of the house. All of the rooms opened onto a wraparound porch, which was very interesting, which has caused some people to say suspiciously that that allowed tea or other people easy access to these rooms. I don't know if there's any truth to that at all. So the planetary court was meant somehow to represent the planets, and the women, the leading women, were somehow meant to align with that. Well, you know, his relationship with the planetary court, um, I think we've maybe been skirting this issue, and I'm just going to ask it bluntly. It was supposed to be a celibate group. What's the evidence on that about whether Teed followed those rules? Early on, in his letters to his closest friend in the 1870s, it was pretty clear to me that he was celibate. Later, after the move to Chicago and then the move to Florida, there were an awful lot of husbands who complained that he had made their hearthstones desolate and there were just so many suggestions that he had taken liberties with these women. I never found a smoking gun. I never found solid, indisputable evidence that he had sex with any of these women. Um, but when you have 40 people writing the local paper complaining and saying that he did, there's considerable doubt that he continued to be celibate. Maybe he did, but I've got some doubt in my mind. Okay. Well, speaking of sex, I, I, I'm a modest guy, okay? And I'm, I don't know how to ask How do you this. mean that, Dan? I'm just uncomfortable with my everything. So, <laughs> but I came across a phrase I've li literally never seen before. And uh, I guess I'm hoping slash afraid you're going to tell me what it means. What? What is urethral sex? Well, this is a phrase I have Lynn Milner to thank for because I encountered it in her book. And that was a lead I had to follow up given the constant innovations in sex and celibacy that a lot of these American communal movements were undertaking, to put it uh, blandly. Um, and so I started with, with this reference and went digging in the archives in Florida. and. It turns out that one of the women who kind of served as one of Teed's benefactors, she and the woman who was Teed's landlady, the, they were the ones that apparently were interested in urethral sex. And Teed comes across this idea uh, through, I think, Stephen Pearl Andrews, who uh, was also known to uh, Elizabeth Thompson, his benefactress, widow who had uh, inherited a lot of money. He would go visit her. Whether or not they practiced this, I'm not sure, but I think they were the ones who were interested in it and not Teed. Teed was kind of cautiously interested in it. Um, 
as all right, a, wait, 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 wait. What's <laughs> wait? What's the it? I don't know what it is. It it is. Don't uh, ever Google it, you guys. Never <laughs> ever Google it. The suggestion seemed to me that urethral sex was a way to remain celibate and still fulfill biological desires. And this was an idea, again, that I think originates with Stephen Pearl Andrews. And I don't know if they tested it, um, but there was discussion of it, and he relates it in his letters to uh, his friend, uh, A.B. Andrews. Mr. Morris, I have to interrupt at this moment. Um, (laughs) You're not on the stand in federal court, sir. Can you please give us an explicit description of what exactly urethral sex is? Because you really danced around the issue now for about five minutes. I think um, I think it involves a a method of intercourse entailing insertion of the the male member into the female urethra, and what? I think it was it was intended to avoid procreation, and is a variation on male continence as practiced at Oneida. At least that's how I found it described. Right, and then it causes female incontinence, right? So it's kind of a yin yang thing. <laughs> Yeah. So I don't know, again, if they ever put this to the test or what the results were if they did. But um, I don't think it's a practice that continued into the Florida period. I think, especially at such close quarters in Florida, and given the climate, it would have been highly unwise to be (laughs) engaging in such experiments. Highly unwise, indeed. Um, Maybe Lynn can chime in with more wisdom. So I do know that one of Teed's letters back to his friend, A.B., he was very alarmed that Thompson and Egley had sort of posed this, you know, possibility of having urethral sex. He was very alarmed um, and uh, didn't like it at all and actually wanted to leave the house. So I think he probably never followed up on that. Is it noisier than than traditional sex? Is that why he wanted to leave the house or? By noise, do you mean uh, N-O-Y-E-S? <laughs> <laughs> now that's a great inside baseball pun for our show, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So Adam, we see pictures of the Christian unity and it, it seems like an overwhelmingly European Anglo white community, but they're doing a lot of their theological work in the 1890s at the beginning of a lot of pseudo scientific evaluation of race and the relation, of course, of the races to economics and and so forth. What have you found about Teed's attitudes towards race? So Early on, there isn't a lot of evidence or writing or anything about race in Teed's theology. However, he was obsessed with the exploitation of labor. And so as the Gilded Age picks up steam over the course of Teed's career, it, it, he does more thinking about who constitutes the working class. And the relocation to Florida opened his eyes about who was being the most exploited by capitalism, which he had railed against for his entire messianic career. He traveled around a lot and his eyes were opened to the situation, especially of the blacks who lived in the American South. 
And there are letters from later in his development as a theologian or as a labor organizer and thinker, however we want to conceive him, where he says that he has begun preaching to black churches and he's surprised at how receptive they are to his message. He died before he really got any traction there. So T didn't get that off the ground in real life. He did get it off the ground in fiction. His last book project was a novel that bears an uncanny resemblance to a Jack London novel. And Teed complains in the preface to this novel that everyone rejected it, but a certain someone else, meaning Jack London, got his very similar novel published. And he's very bitter about being rejected by mainstream publishers. And the Guiding Star Publishing House of, that the Corrections operated themselves ended up publishing it. And it's fantastic. It really lays out what Teed saw was the future of basically communism or socialist labor organization had to involve, in his view, an amalgamation of races. And in the novel, there's a fictitious uh, version of the Croatian colony that is huge and flourishing and very militaristically powerful. And Teed imagines a future amalgamated race that he calls the red race arising out of the Caribbean, ostensibly on Cuba. So it's really a shame for many reasons that he died when he did because uh, he wasn't able really to continue fleshing out some of these provocative ideas that, that would make him very much more relevant in the 20th century. And that novel, Adam, was called? The Great Red Dragon or The Flaming Red Devil of the Orient, I think is the full title. Is it? And, you said it's fantastic, Adam. Is it really? It, it so, sounds terrible. <laughs> sometimes when a historian says something is fantastic, they mean it's remarkable and incredibly odd as a historical document, but not necessarily sterling in literary quality. Not Oprah Book Club kind of a, a selection. No, and unfortunately, it traffics in other race stereotypes, uh, anti-Asian sentiment that was very popular among the working men's movement in California when Teed was there with his Bureau of Equitable Commerce, and the anti-Asian immigration sentiment that was broadly popular enough for exclusion acts to be passed in the late 19th century. And so it, it is racist in that regard, and it doesn't really get into the issue head on of African-American slavery or anything like that. But he did ultimately seem to have a view that was progressing toward racial equality through this amalgamation. And it may have been driven to a certain extent on wanting to build membership, I have to say that. The, the novel was in the sort of yellow peril era when there was a lot of anti-Asian sentiment. And I think it's even called a yellow peril kind of novel. So, Lynn, one of the most fascinating aspects of the Koreshian experience in Florida is their attempt to prove that the surface of the Earth actually curves upwards. Can you tell us a little bit about how they use the rectilineators you described to try to do that? Yeah, well, they had several sections of the rectilineator, and that created a right angle. So their idea was to run those sections down a straight stretch of beach and that as they ran it down the beach, the earth would rise up, so to speak, to meet that right angle, proving that the earth was concave and that we live in the inside of it. So they set about doing this. They had all sorts of travails. 
in the process of doing this. This uh, rectilineator had traveled from Chicago, many, many, many miles of uh, train tracks. And there was also what they called an enemy in the camp who was trying to sabotage the rectilineator experiment, and they did away with him. But then they finally proved to their satisfaction that the Earth was, in fact, concave, given their measurements, and they were so delighted. And they thought that the scientific community would finally recognize this theory and realize that Copernicus was wrong all these years. And um, the scientific community, there was a resounding nothing from them. Uh, One kind of humorous thing, but also kind of pitiful, is that Ulysses Grant Morrow, who led the geodetic experiment on Naples Beach, actually considered applying for the Nobel Prize for his work. The Nobel Prize was only under consideration at that point. Alfred Nobel had just died and his heirs were fighting over how they were going to set it up. So his idea was to just apply in advance of the prize existing so that when they were ready to give the funds, they could award it to him and without delay. Um, and of course, that, that didn't happen. <laughs> we're... Uh, we're applying in advance for the yet-to-be-announced Nobel Podcasting Award, so uh, we'll have our application uh, ready in multiple languages soon. I think um, that's a good idea. Lynn, <laughs> Lynn, one thing I wanted to follow up about the Hollow Earth, uh, it seems so serious, and they seemed like they really meant it, and then... I also just caught a whiff of like, I wonder if they had a sense of humor about it from your book. I feel like I read that one of their slogans was, we live inside, drop in and see us. Yep. What's your, yeah. what's your sense of that? So they had lapel pins um, printed up that said, we live inside, drop in and see us. And they had an image of the the earth. So yes, they they did have a sense of humor about it. They recognized just how strange it seemed to other people. But I also don't want to look at it in isolation. I think it's important to note that the hollow earth was very important spiritually to them. So their theory was that God would not create anything that they wouldn't be able to understand. So they were on this search for understanding. And if you are standing on the edge inside the earth, able to look in at all of God's creation, you're in a perfect sort of bubble. It's a great symbol for today's filter bubbles. Um, and you can you can look at the heavens and the stars and, and see everything in this perfect sphere. And that was so important to them. Um, it was kind of sweet, if you think about it, that they really believed that God wouldn't create anything that they couldn't they weren't capable of understanding. So they felt very protected and safe. And and Teed was a big part of that. So proving it was sort of this fascination or almost like a obsession. Um, but the overall theology of it was just this very sweet kind of thing that, that held them together, even if many of them didn't understand it. Mm. Lynn, I remember in your book, you cited uh, the book of Isaiah. 4012, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens, who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance. And that T used that verse. And I also recall reading that they held one last Christmas celebration and decided as a community to see celebrating it since the Messiah was there present with them. 
So every day was was really like Christmas for them, I guess, in that regard. Now, they had this insular security and this theology that bolstered that. But what was it like for them interacting with the non-Koreshian world around them? It could get dicey. Um, they had a, a lot of interactions with the outside world. They had a general store. They had an orchestra. People would come and hear them play. They had a, a band, a marching band, and they would take that band to different festivals. They sold baked goods. They went into town. You know, town was Fort Myers, which was just a little bit north of there. Um, so they had a lot of interaction with the townspeople. And things were okay. There were a lot of complaints about Teed in the newspaper, a lot of accusations that he was somehow abusing the followers or trapping them or, you know, holding them against their will or even starving them. So there was a lot of suspicion from the outsiders, but it didn't come to much until it did. So it was about politics. The 1906 election there was a real fear that the Koreshians were all going to vote as a block, as however T told them to vote, they would vote. And that fear was valid. So the people of Fort Myers, they tried to disenfranchise them. And that led to a big fight. And it also led to the Koreshians forming their own newspaper. They had their printing press down here, and they started printing the American Eagle. And there were press wars like you wouldn't believe. As a journalist, I loved researching this part of the book because the paper in Fort Myers and the American Eagle went to war about everything you can imagine. So the Koreshians had been disenfranchised. They come up to the polls, they vote, and then their votes are thrown out. So we're talking press war. We're talking editorial cartoons, making fun of officials in Fort Myers. It became really vitriolic, but also very uh, humorous. And Teed, of course, being the head of the unity, was probably somewhat of a public target. And unfortunately, he was involved in a little fight I he was. And he was in his late 60s uh, at this point, so not a good time to get in a fight. So he had some friends coming down. He was meeting the train in downtown Fort Myers, a fight that started over a very silly thing. It was just a kind of a crossed wire in terms of a connection about where someone was staying. And it turned out that a man who owned a hotel accused a corruption of lying to his wife over this silly crossed wire thing. And it turned into a big fight. And so Teed's coming to meet his friends at the train station and he sees this fight happening, a verbal fight at that point. And he approaches and people are just primed to hate Teed at this point. So Teed approaches and tries to see what's going on. And the guy turns around, takes a swing at him. This 60-something-year-old man takes a swing at him. His glasses fall off. And he, before he knows it, this mob rushes in. They've just been hating him. And it's just, it's just this terrible fist fight. So he sustains injuries, and he's harmed in this fight. It seems like the lesson of Chicago was stop engaging with the, the normies. It's not going to work. They're going to be mad and hate you. And what's interesting to me about this period in Florida is it seems like they go to Florida 
precisely for that reason, so that they can be left alone. And yet somehow they get tangled up um, in the local community again. I'm wondering how you think about that. Yeah, they prefer to be isolated and on their own and self-sufficient, and that's why they built all of these industries and supported themselves. But that wasn't always possible. You know, the transportation hub was north of them. They had to go into the city for certain things. Um, And then when tax revenue got involved, they certainly wanted some of the revenue for different improvements. And so the fight really began when the orange growers who owned lots of land and the Koreshans who owned relatively less land, but it was more dense, right? They were really worried that the Koreshans were going to have a lot of control over the tax revenue because they were more densely populated in their land. So that didn't go very well. So even though they tried to isolate, when can you ever do that? You know, um, you've got orange growers in your backyard. And then if you ever want to go anywhere, you have to go north into downtown Fort Myers. So you're going to mix with people. And then someone like Teed, who is a public figure, is just going to arouse lots of interest and suspicion. So inevitably, they did get embroiled in, you know, fights over politics and It's so interesting. There's so many parallels uh, with other American communal groups. Joseph Smith and the Mormons, politics removed them from Missouri and from Illinois and almost from the the Great Salt Lake area. The Rajneesh Pram in Oregon, same thing. They settled a rural ranching area and suddenly there were this threatening voting block. And if I recall correctly, Teed, after he sustained these injuries, went into seclusion from the followers who loved him and and that was when he was working on the novel, The Great Red Dragon, that Adam was referring to. Can you talk a little bit about those last couple of years where he was living, what his life was like? Sure. So the fight was in 1906, I think. He died in 1908. His followers prefer to believe that the fight caused the injuries that led to his death. I did a lot of research about that. I spoke with a neurologist. I spoke with a medical examiner who said, no, there's just no way that these injuries led to his death because what he really had was nerve damage. And the neurologist told me, you can't die from nerve damage, but you will feel like you would like to die. (laughs) So he had shooting pains. After the fight, he was in Washington, D.C., trying to start a new location for the unity in D.C. at the time. And he was isolated from his followers and experiencing lots and lots of pain. The reason we know this is that he would write his followers these loving letters saying, I miss you, and then describing how much pain he was in and how much he wished he could be with them. So finally, he he did go to a stero to sort of um, rest, and he came back. The followers had been building, had been renovating a house for him, but he needed to be away, and he went to the island nearby to a retreat house that they had, which was where he died. He had a pattern of removing himself from his followers, and this is common with narcissists and bipolar people. He would remove himself from his followers and and then kind of create this, you know, they would miss him, and then he would, I guess, go through a depression or whatever and then return. So this return was always celebrated, right? So his return from D.C. was just, oh, joy, 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 right? The Christians were happiest when they could be with their master. That's what they called him. And so he kind of 
played on this, or maybe not, depending on whether you think he was a con man or not. Certainly narcissism entered the picture. So he comes home, they're doing the renovations. He says, I can't, it's too much noise, right? You have to stop the renovations. And then he goes to the island to try to recover. But then that's where he ultimately died. And and so after the fight, it seems like he's really less in charge in a kind of day to day way. What what's happening with the the followers in Florida while he's sick, and then and then when he dies? While he's sick, they have this common hardship where our master is away. We have to keep things rolling. They were very industrious. They were building. They were creating their Jerusalem. They wanted to make him proud. They were going to exhibitions. So they were very industrious during that time and waiting for him, waiting for a time when they could all be together. Um, And then when he came home and he died, for a while they remained bonded. But then very quickly, Victoria, who had been his counterpart, he had chosen her, Within four months, she was gone. <laughs> she, she left. Ran. She left the community. She left. She, wow. she ran off with the dentist of all things. <laughs> <laughs> you know, judging from her pictures, that was probably a smart move. <laughs> Do you know? I think the library at FGCU found Teed's dentures. Ooh. They showed these dentures to me. There was a little soap tin. And they brought it up and they shook it. And they were like, what do you think this is? And I'm like, I have no idea. They're always finding weird stuff. And they opened it. And it's a set of teeth. And I'm like. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Now, do you think um, all all of his tasting of heavy metals back in the 1860s could have led to this nerve damage that he later suffered? You know, I never talked to anyone about that, and I, I have no idea what long-term effects of licking batteries are. <laughs> I'm, I'm comfortable saying it wasn't a good idea. So, <laughs> right, not a good idea, but in terms of long-term effects, I don't, I don't really. Was it, you guys were all six-year-old boys, or have you had any after-effects of licking batteries? Nothing but after-effects. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's how we got to where we are today. <laughs> Yeah, I totally remember um, sticking the nine volts on your tongue, you know, and the little little bit of vinegary fry, you know. And then I'm sure you also stuck your fingers in the outlets too, right? I, yes. I actually I missed that one. I did. I remember getting blown back once and a very brief blackout. I'll admit it. <laughs> I tricked my brother into doing it. He's never <laughs> forgiven me. <laughs> there you go. So you guys experienced a buzzing at your occiput probably. absolutely it's hard to recreate that first high isn't it Okay, I can't go any further without getting both of you. I have to ask what you think of Teed. So, Lynn, you have this great sentence in your book, and I'm going to read it. You say, it's impossible to tell whether Teed was duping anyone. And the Koreshans didn't seem lost or weak. And I love this uh, phrasing. It's got two parts to it. And I want to go to you for the first part, which is, why is it hard to tell with Teed if he's a con man or a true believer? Oh, that's a great question. And as a journalist, I was just driven throughout the book to let the reader decide this, right? So for me, 
it was important that the reader not be told and that the reader be given the scenario. Here's what he did, right? You decide. I'm not going to shove it down your throat. And it's interesting. Some people were like, oh, yeah, he was a con man. And other people were like, mm, I don't know. And then a lot of some people were like, well, he was kind of both, right? He believed in what he was sent to Earth to do. And he resorted to techniques in order to make that happen, you know? So it's possible that it's both. Um, why was it hard to tell? Maybe it depends on how you look at the world. If you want to believe that people are basically good, you might say that he was a true believer, right? I think it's on a spectrum. I think it's not one way or the other. And I was aware as I sat down every day to write this book, I am not going to make a pronouncement about that. The reader has to decide. Well, Adam, you're a reader of Lynn's book. What did you decide? I thought he was completely sincere. I think the historical evidence is such that either Teed never dropped his character or he was totally sincere in his mission. And he did alter his his own past in some ways and his theology along the way. But I think he truly believed in his mission. And I didn't find anything that would contradict that in the historical record. And I think with that, he has that in common with a lot of the other counterparts in American messianic movements. So after Teed, I have to say it was quite a twist in your book, Lynn. I was not expecting the successor that emerged, Hedwig Mitchell. Can you tell us about her? Yeah, so she was escaping Nazi Germany. She had run a school, and she was Jewish. She learned somehow about the hollow earth. I believe it was from a colleague at the school that she was running. She heard about Astero and about these people, and she made her way there. She was escaping Nazi Germany. She came to Estero and saw kind of the state of things. They were in disrepair because after T died, the unity really went into decline. And the membership was aging. A lot of them had died. There were fewer Koreshans and many of them were quite old. So she came in and she said, this needs to be preserved somehow. And so she did a lot to revitalize the place. She eventually put in a gas station she revived the restaurant, and she's known as the last Koreshian survivor. She's not an original Koreshian, and it's not clear to me whether she believed in Koreshianity or the hollow earth. But what is clear is that she decided this needs to be a state park. We need to donate this land to Florida so that this culture can somehow be preserved for history because she saw that it was dying. They've restored several of the buildings, you can walk through the founder's house where Teed lived and where the dentist worked. You can see the planetary court. You can see the art hall that they built in 1905 where their orchestra performed and where they uh, produced dramas and his sermons where he preached. There's still the podium that he preached from, which has this very weird insignia on it that has something to do with Zoroastrianism. So, uh, yeah, it's a wonderful thing to go and see. There was a charming story near the close of your book about one of the last Koreshians and their reaction to the 1969 moon land. Could you talk about that? 
Yeah, it, charming and sad. Because this woman was very young when her mother brought her into the Unity. They lived in San Francisco. Her father had died when she was very young. And so her mother joined the Unity. Her name was Vesta. Her name originally was Lillian Teed, renamed her Vesta and called her one of his Thunder Daughters. So she was one of the Thunder Daughters. She was a teenager when, when they joined and he just doted on her. So she grew up in the Unity. And then when she was quite old, the men landed on the moon, or the boys, as she called them. So she had grown up having devoted her entire life to believing in tea, believing in Christianity, believing in the hollow earth. And she was interviewed in the 70s, and someone asked her what she thought about the landing, and she said, and this breaks my heart, when I watched the boys land on the moon, I knew it couldn't be true. And I know she was talking about the hollow earth theory. I don't know if that bled over into Christianity about whether or not that was true. But I do know from neighbors who lived there in the 70s, they remember Vesta coming to their house and saying, get me out of here. One of my questions that I'm I'm really curious about uh, about all the communes we're going to be talking about on this podcast series. Do you think people were by and large happy? Hmm. I don't think you can generalize. I think that the core group was very happy, judging from their letters, but they also weren't suffering as much as some of the outer people. I think there was considerable favoritism going on. They were happiest when their master was with them. But then in the 30s, I remember even the, one of the staunchest followers was writing back about how hungry they all were, about how it was not a pleasant place to be. So I think the, the followers who really loved him were, were very happy, yes. People who became disenchanted with him tended to do so quickly, uh, found themselves in Fort Myers with no money, no possessions, uh, there was no way to escape. And so they were very unhappy. <laughs> so as long as you believed and were one of the favored ones, it was great. So Lynn, one thing that I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be curious about, is there a connection between Cyrus Reed Teed, AKA Koresh, and then the man that we know as David Koresh and the tragedy that happened in Waco, Texas? I definitely wondered this, Christian, when you uh, first mentioned them, them to me. I hadn't heard of them. Yeah. So great question. So each man believed he was King Cyrus. And Koresh is a transliteration of Cyrus. So each man believed himself to be divinely appointed to receive and interpret messages from God about the second coming as outlined in Revelation. They thought it was going to be preceded by some sort of violent clash and that this clash might end their lives. So Teed believed the clash was inevitable. David Koresh was looking for a way to prevent it. Mm. And then he ran into Janet Reno like a brick wall. So, yeah. So he was, when they were holed up in that compound in Waco, he was trying to prevent the second coming. And the FBI negotiators were trying to stop 
the you know plowing into the building and they were negotiating with David Koresh. As the FBI was negotiating with David Koresh, they somehow learned about Cyrus Teed, right, and the Koreshans. And they told David Koresh about Cyrus Teed and about his writings and that he too was was studying the book of Revelation and the seventh seal. And Koresh apparently asked to see Cyrus Teed's work. Can you send in his work? Because again, Koresh was trying to stop this. Um, I don't know if David Koresh ever got that, but that was the discussion that went on that he had asked to see his work from outside the compound. So yes, so there's a theological relation, a relationship between them in that they both believed they were King Cyrus. Fascinating. Lynn, I loved your book, but I can't recommend it enough uh, to listeners. The, the the descriptions of Florida, you can tell you're just in love with the geography and the landscape of, of Southwest Florida. It was really just vivid portraiture. I'm wondering, how do you hope people remember the Crescent Unity? Or why do you want them to remember it? For me, um, I thought a lot about this. I'm always interested in why people believe things that seem outlandish to other people. Um, I do think that they are a great illustration of the filter bubbles that we find ourselves in today. I do, I study conspiracy theories and cults. I think we can learn a lot from them. I don't like it when I hear people dismiss them as crazy. I don't like it when I hear us today dismiss each other as crazy, right? Before the book came out, people would hear about the Russians and they would say, ah, you know, aren't they goofy, right? Or stupid or whatever. And I thought, no, they deserve better. They devoted their lives and yeah, their beliefs were outlandish, but they devoted their lives to this and they were educated and cultured and here's my hollow earth belief. <laughs> it's that education can somehow inoculate us from crazy. It's not true, but I believe it, right? I walk around believing it, even though I know it's not true. So when I saw how educated they were and how verbal and articulate they were, and they composed musicals and they played music and they read and they knew different languages and everything, and they believed this. Um, so I just wanted to give them their due. Well, Adam Morris and Lynn Milner, thank you both so much. It's been a treat. Well, this has been really fun, you guys. Thanks for including me. Oh, thank you so much for doing it. Delighted. Yeah.